Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Patty Lockard, sitting in for Casey and Shane. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled to limit the collective voice of Illinois home care workers continuing a dangerous pattern of undermining democracy, as well as eroding the rights of workers to have a collective voice through their unions, and signals a desire for broader restrictions, said National Nurses United, the largest U.S. organization of nurses. These actions continue a steady assault on the rights of workers and consumers by what has become the Supreme Corporate Court with a general tilt towards wealthy corporate interests and further the manipulation of free speech, said National Nurses United Executive Director Roseanne DeMauro. The latest anti-union ruling in Harris v. Quinn, said DeMauro, sends strong signals of the right-wing majority's desire for more sweeping restrictions on the ability of workers to collectively participate in public policy through their unions as a counterweight to the virtually unlimited corruption of public life by corporate interests. This decision comes one year after the limited Knox v. Local 1000, in which the Roberts Court admonished a public sector union for spending funds on one election fight. Here with us today to talk about these cases and their respective ramifications is Pam Allen, Legal Director for California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. Pam has worked as a union-side labor attorney for more than 25 years. Pam, welcome to Nurse Talk, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. Uh, let's just get started. And can you give us a summary or an overview of the Harris versus Quinn case? How did it get all the way to the Supreme Court and who might be behind it? Well, the answer to who might be behind it is, uh, is narrowly the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, more broadly, the many uh, corporate supporters of the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, and, uh, and the named plaintiff herself, along with uh, similar uh, co-plaintiffs, is the parent of uh, a severely disabled uh, man, young man, in, in Illinois. The mother, Pamela Harris, was paid to care for him at home under a program uh, jointly sponsored by the federal government and the state of Illinois, and similar programs are in place in other states across the nation, um, using, uh, by which uh, the state uses Medicaid funds to pay family members and other caregivers to care for disabled individuals who would otherwise be institutionalized at far greater cost to the government. That sounds like a reasonable program. It, it's a reasonable program, and uh, as, as the defendant in that case, Quinn, the governor of Illinois, argued, it's effective because um, caregivers in the home generally provide uh, a more individualized, uh, caring, care-centered program for their loved ones, and uh, and the state very much appreciates having a union allied with it because the, the union can assist with recruiting qualified caregivers if there's not a family member to provide the home in care and can also oversee and assist in training programs for those caregivers. So the state of Illinois was very much on board with working with the union 
after a majority of home care workers in Illinois expressed their democratic uh, will to be represented by a union. Ms. Harris objected uh, to the union because she didn't want to pay union dues. And she turned to the National Right to Work Committee, or maybe the National Right to Work Committee uh, found her. It's, it's unclear how those two um, came into yes. contact. But the National Right to Work Committee's major agenda is to eradicate union security, eradicate unions altogether, but to undermine unions by uh, undermining their financial support. So when a union wins an election campaign and the majority of employees choose to be represented, states that are not considered right-to-work states may allow employers to enter into agreements with the union by which everyone who receives the benefit of the union's bargaining efforts to negotiate contracts that set forth standards for employment and and their efforts to enforce that contract have to pay their fair share. That's a non-union or union member, is that correct? Correct. Yes. So you don't have to be a member of the union, but you have to pay your fair share. Yes. Now, there's another principle uh, that was established uh, by a much earlier Supreme Court precedent that says you don't have to be a member, but you have to pay your fair share of the union's efforts in collective bargaining. You don't, if you disagree with the union's political program, for example, the union supports candidates for political office that are more liberal than you might choose, you don't have, your fair share fee does not have to include that portion of union expenditures devoted to whatever political program an individual union might have. And is this all applicable in this Harris versus Quinn case? Yes. So uh, Pamela Quinn, as an objecting employee, did not have to join the union, nor did she have to pay for any share of the union's political program. What the Right to Work Committee argued in this case, however, is that whenever a public sector union bargains with a government employer, it's the equivalent of petitioning the government. Now, that's a pretty absurd Mm. um, proposition, but they made it with a straight face (laughs) and tried to persuade the Supreme Court that any time a union, a public sector union, bargains with a government employer, um, it is petitioning the government and therefore... Uh, if someone objects to the very fact of uh, the union seeking improved terms and conditions of employment on their behalf, it would uh, infringe their free speech rights and would uh, be tantamount to compelled speech. Oh, my goodness. Um, and that was the theory. Now, yeah. fortunately, the court didn't buy it. But they did criticize at some length, I should say the majority of the court did criticize at some length the existing uh, precedent that they ultimately felt bound not to overturn generally. They did, however, overturn precedent in this case as it applied to the home care workers in Illinois. 
uh, on the theory that uh, home care workers as personal attendants really have two employers. They were paid by the state of Illinois, which most of us would think, well, then that's their employer. But under a provision in the Medicaid program, at least as administered in Illinois, um, the patients for whom these home care workers provide care and assistance have to, at least nominally, approve who the home care worker is. So in order to rule in favor of the plaintiff in this case, the majority of the Supreme Court said, well, this is a unique category of workers who are not true state employees because they've got this sort of hybrid joint employer, i.e. the patient and the state. And so we're not going to permit the union to interfere with their free speech rights. Well, that's really very interesting for those of us who don't know much about Supreme Court decisions and the legal aspect of it. I hear in the news that this was a great victory for anti-union or, or the home health care workers in Illinois. What do you say about that? Was it a big victory? Absolutely not. It was a bruising loss for home health care workers Yes. In Illinois. I mean, it does what it what it does is it, it permits those workers to choose not to uh, pay their fair share for the representation they receive. Yes. So if someone would prefer to um, take something for nothing, and unfortunately, there is certainly a streak of, of human nature that um, is prevalent among some people. Um, you know, it, it will mean that they don't have to pay for the representation they receive from the union that won that uh, election campaign. And uh, but in the end, it, it will likely have the effect of eroding their uh, their standard, their employment standards. Yeah. So what does this case mean for the future of unions and collective bargaining? Does it have an impact Well, it absolutely has an impact on home care workers and not just in Illinois because um, it's, you know, it's now a presidential decision by the United States Supreme Court and it will apply to home care workers who are paid with government funds anywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond that, uh, there was very sharp criticism in the majority opinion And we believe it's a very confused analysis, but of the First Amendment rights of workers represented by unions, and it it portends a further erosion of union security, which is the concept that you don't have to be a member of the union and you don't have to fund a union's political program, but you do have to pay your fair share of uh, union expenditures that are germane to collective bargaining. Well, there's definitely a a pattern here. Uh, Now, let's talk about the Knox versus Local 1000 case and decision. That was a year prior to the Harris versus Quinn case. Can you just briefly tell us about what that involved? Well, the facts of that case were quite different, Um, but it it was also brought by the National uh, Right to Work Foundation's attorneys, and, um, and it similarly challenged the right of public sector workers uh, not to um, lend any financial support to the to unions bargaining on their behalf. The distinction in that case is that it involved a, a special assessment that uh, Local 1000 made 
on uh, on the employees in in this large, uh, actually state of California bargaining unit. The assessment was designed to assist the union in fending off another assault on uh, on union representation, another assault on um, essentially on funding uh, the union's fight and. What the union in that case allowed was employees to opt out of paying the, uh, the, the special assessment. And the court ruled that uh, the union should never have made the special assessment universally to cover all the represented employees, but rather should have gone to them and said, you have a choice. If you'd like to support this, we'd like to make a financial assessment to support it. In other words, employees would have to opt in to support the union's effort as opposed to opting out. Are these decisions being made on the merits of the cases, or is there something bigger at play here? Um, the Supreme Court siding with corporations, perhaps? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's clearly a systematic effort to undermine the, uh, the effectiveness of, of labor unions especially the recent case, Harris v. Quinn, it's preposterous to think that a union negotiating with a government employer on behalf of employees would be infringing the free speech rights of those employees when the subject of the negotiation is those employees' terms and conditions of employment. Well, I'm not an attorney, but I know that's a stretch. (laughs) Even I know that's a stretch. You know, broadly speaking, the stakes uh, in this litigation, and I'm sure we haven't seen the end of it. In fact, there are several cases, you know, in the pike on similar theories. Um, the stakes are really whether or not labor unions will continue to be viable in the United States. That's right. And and we all know that, that labor unions are a huge voting block, and I think that it doesn't take too much to connect the dots on that. That's right. Often we have these discussions, and people listening don't really understand or realize that it does have an impact on them, even though they're not, you know, in a union or part of a union. Uh, Why is it important to have this discussion uh, in a public forum? It's critical. Here's why. If you're talking about a nurse's union, my client is is a nurse's union. When the nurses bargain with hospital employers, whether those hospitals are operated by uh, local or state governments, public universities, or private hospital systems, uh, whether they be nonprofit or publicly traded, nurses are, yes, fighting for their own working conditions. They want to be able to uh, have a meal break on a 12-hour shift so they're not fatigued and um, not functioning well by hour eight or ten into the shift, and they want to be paid fairly for what we know is very, very difficult work. But they also fight in their contract negotiations for reasonable staffing levels that permit them to provide good care for their patients. We know that a lot of employers, if they weren't required um, to staff properly or to have uh, proper lift equipment available to assist with lifting and turning patients who are not ambulatory or any number of critical patient care concerns, employers um, might find it easy to, to lapse. 
And if you have a union contract and, uh, and a union there to insist on enforcement of that contract, the patients cared for by those nurses who know how best to care for patients uh, is, is improved and protected. It's better for me, it's better for you, it's better for anyone, which is probably all of us, who may have a hospital stay in their future. Right. And, and you know, the same analysis applies to a lot of other settings. It applies to firefighters who run into burning buildings and, yes. uh, you know, um, food inspectors, um, you know, OSHA inspectors who are trying to ensure a safe workplace you know, for your family when they go off to work. Um, it's just the examples are, are endless. Yes. Anything else you would like to, to add to the discussion, Pam? I guess I would just say, you know, from, you know, in, in a narrow sort of legalistic uh, analysis uh, involving the court, I, I think it's important for people to remember that we're dealing with a court that is perhaps more than any time in the history of this country uh, very highly politicized. The uh, the conservative majority is, uh, you know, the five conservative justices were all appointed by Republicans, and the four you know, so-called liberals were all appointed by Democrats. It didn't also always used to be that way. Um, we've got a court that's very strategic about engineering changes that apply to all of us. And if we had more time, you know, the, the uh, survey of recent decisions by this court uh, very much spell a trend that we should all be wary of. And it's, it's critical for people to stand yes. up and, and speak out. You know, the court uh, pretends it's not a, a political animal, but um, in fact it is. And uh, the, uh, the politicians who appoint the justices and, uh, you know, the, the members of the Senate who approve their appointments need to hear from all of us. Well, it's very high stakes for sure. And I thank you so much for uh, the wonderful insight and legal description and just the uh, general information you gave on these topics. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. We've been talking with Pam Allen, Legal Director for California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. For more information about this topic, visit www.nnu.org.